Open your Bibles. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. One of my favorite accounts is of some soldiers who were uh, in the Korean War. And they had uh, finished a, a certain battle and they become, they'd liberated some, uh, um, some Koreans who were um, uh, being enslaved. And these Koreans were so grateful that they just treated these soldiers to just a week or two of just R&R, rest and relaxation. Well, there's one Korean boy who specifically had an affection for these three American soldiers. And he set them up in this little cabin out behind their house, this little uh, shack rather. And uh, he was serving them night and day. And they developed an affection for this little boy. And so they would begin doing tricks on him. They would uh, nail his shoes to the ground. So he would get up, put his shoes on in the morning and wouldn't go anywhere. They would put a bucket of water over the uh, door and uh, he would open it up and splash. And he just kept smiling. Just the greatest kid. Yeah, just loving these guys. And they were like, man, this, this kid's amazing. Never seen a kid like this. Practical joke after practical joke. And he just kept smiling and smiling and smiling. Finally, their conscience is just killing them. Like, we've we got to leave this guy alone. So they brought him in. They said, hey, listen. We're, we're so sorry. We've been, we've been mean to you. And you've taken it so well. So we're, we're going to stop. And he goes, really? Yeah, really. You mean no more nail shoes to the floor? No more nail shoes to the floor. No more bucket of water on head? No more bucket of water on head. No more, no more, no more. No, we're not going to do it. He goes, oh, okay. Then no more spit in soup. <laughs> they just got it over on the side. It's like, oh, now I see. It's good. Those are the seniors. They've been filling their minds full of SAT things all summer. And they're just now understanding jokes. The inequities and injustices of life make us desire retribution. Have you ever noticed that the entire television industry is built on this? Unless it's a comedy, almost every single show goes like this. It's an hour show. And for about 10 minutes, you set up the character. For the next 20, 30 minutes, the bad guy is fully developed and gets like... Everything in place. And then for that next few minutes, he is in charge and the bad guy is loving life. And only for the last five minutes, everybody's pumped so that by the end of the show, you want the bad guy to get it, right? And it's the same plot over and over and over. Why are we so interested in that? There's a reason. And it's a God-given reason. All of us have a desire to see justice come about. We want to see the bad guy get it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing until we realize that before God, all of us are bad guys. It's not just the fictional fantasies that bring inequities and injustices to our attention, though. Reality screams at us daily that retribution, judgment, and justice are needed. A few years ago, I remember my wife and I sitting watching the news and hearing an account of Susan Smith in North Carolina. It's a mother who strapped her two little boys, three and five years old, into their seatbelts and drove her car into a lake and let them drown. And the heartbreak, we just, I remember we looked at that and Kim and I just looked at each other and went, 
how, and my immediate response was her. You need to have your due. How could you possibly do this? I remember one commentator saying, put her in the electric chair and I'll push the button. Why? Why do we want to see the bad guys get justice? There's a reason. We learned about it yesterday. God has put eternity in our heart, meaning he's put the image of God placed on us so that we desire in a very, very tainted and stained and dull way the same things that God desires. The problem is we tend to put ourselves on the judgment throne and behind the court's seat rather than let God be in control. We're wired to programmed wired and programmed rather to ask in our consciences why why does this happen and people should get it in this unfair and broken world. Let's reorient ourselves of where we are. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes and we're living life as Solomon says under the sun. Now just for a footnote, he uses that term under the sun 27 times. It means life outside the garden of Eden and this side of heaven. But life under the sun is a broken world. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 to 9, Solomon tells us that our duty is to submit to authority. Even authority that fails, even ungodly authority, but to be submitters to authority because that pleases the Lord. This admonition obviously brings up obvious questions about those who abuse and misuse their authority. Their positions to hurt those under them. In that context, Solomon writes this little bitty section in verse 8. I've called it a subpoena to heaven's court. Now, subpoena is a, is a big word that simply means a summons. It's a request. It's actually a demand that the court gives you to come to court. It's a subpoena to come. But this subpoena is not one in which we're called to testify as a witness, give evidence in a case as a lawyer, Rather, God pulls back the curtain and reminds us that it's Him, He Himself, really in charge and in control, and that we can trust His absolute sovereignty even in the middle of an unfair and broken world. Let me tell you something else about this court. You're there not just a spectator. Uh, I've uh, been to court several times for several reasons. Uh, I've been on a jury duty. I've gone because of traffic things. I've gone to support friends. And and court is is not always like it is on TV. Typically, there's a line. It's not like a massive crowd of people waiting to watch. What you have is, you know, the the judge says, come between 10 and 12. And sometime during that time, they're going to get to your case. So basically, you have the the, uh, the, um, defense and the uh, prosecutor up front. And then you have a line, of, a row of people back there. They're waiting in line to have their day in court. You and I, this morning, are sitting in that line. Some of us, though, have already been to court. And some of us are still waiting for judgment. Now, we're going to look at this passage a little differently than we might look at passages normally where we go straight from verse 1 to the end. What I want to do is give you the conclusion of this passage, and then it'll make sense to come back and work through it. The conclusion of this passage we're looking at in chapter 8 is in verses uh, uh, 16 and 17 in this section. 
16 and 17. Let's go to 16 and 17, grab that, and then we'll go back to verse 10 and grab the rest. In verses 16 and 17, Solomon shows us a couple of frustrations that arise from living life under the sun. Look at verse 16. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work, I concluded, guess what? That man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. That's very important. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, guess what? He can't discover. Now that's the conclusion of the section we're going to look at beginning back in verse 10. What does it mean? Very important. Eye contact, look up. This may be the most important thing you've heard all week. He's saying man's mind, a man's intellect, a man's intuition, and even man's experience cannot make appropriate spiritual conclusions about life. You can't figure out life in a broken world by yourself. The implication is you can't discover it by your reason, but you can receive it by revelation. If you're left to your own to try to figure this life out, you're going to be in a lot of hurt. But if you let God speak into your mind by revelation, by his word, then you'll be able to sort out the inequities, the injustices, the problems, frustrations, and the hurts of life. The mystery of God's justice cannot be answered by wisdom, your own wisdom. And the mystery of God's justice cannot be answered by discovery. So where does that leave us? Perspective about God's justice cannot be gained from wisdom, insight, intuition, discovery. The only place it can be found is through revelation, through God's word. You can't just sort it out by, by looking at it. I was in Geneva um, a few weeks ago and a friend of mine who's a missionary there, we went down to the real expensive section, uh, the watch section in, in Switzerland. And, and uh, John Glass is his name. And, and interestingly enough, he's lived there his whole life and he'd never gone into some of these ritzy places. Now, I didn't, I got a $20 Timex Iron Man. I didn't get a watch in Geneva, by the way. But we went in and, and th- they knew, they, they took one look at us and knew these guys are not here to buy a watch. But we said, hey, you know what? I, I want to see a Breguet. I, I read of this, this book about this master uh, watchmaker who left this process. So uh, I said, can we possibly see a Breguet? She said, well, certainly. I said, we're not going to buy anything. We're just, we just want to look. She says, I know. Well, thank you. So they took us in this secure place. Get this. There were cameras pointing and going, bzz, 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 watching us the whole time. There were two guys standing in the room with us. And then this lady came out with white gloves on holding two watches and put them on this padded leather table and said, you can look at it. The back was clear. You could see through the, all these workings. And so I, I, I had an idea. I said, John, how, how much do you think that, that watch is? And the lady started to answer. I said, Shh, hang on. He goes, well, we were just in another watch store and we saw a really expensive watch for $400. So he goes, man, I don't know. $5,000. I said, ma'am, how much is this watch? 
she said, $120,000. I got two. (laughs) (laughs) And so if you knew my friend John, he's just so, no way! Why is it so expensive? So she brings out this model, and all these intricate little workings. This, This guy has invented this system 120 years ago, where if you just move your wrist like this, it'll wind up for several hours. And this, all these, these uh, gears, and we were looking at it, and it was amazing all that was in there. And all we saw was these two hands. God's justice works so intricately, just like that watch. But you can't look through it unless he flips the back over and lets you see clearly into the way he works. This passage turns that watch over in his justice and says, I want to show you all the gears. By revelation, I want you to know how this thing works. So let's get some perspective from heaven's court. Number one. Don't be disheartened by delayed judgment. As you look at the injustices in the world and the frustrations and the hurt in the world... Don't be disheartened by delayed judgment. Look first at verse 10. Solomon said, So then I've seen the wicked buried, and those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did this. This too is futility. What does that mean? Let me give you, give you a little insight from the Living Bible, okay? Which I think captures the meaning of this really well. This is the Living Bible translation of verse 10. I have seen the wicked buried. And as their friends returned from a cemetery, having forgotten all the dead man's evil deeds, those men were now praised in the very city where they had committed those evil crimes. In other words, the wicked sometimes receive an honorable burial and an unearned reputation of virtue despite their wickedness. I just think of all the immoral little trysts and twists. All of the tabloid expression of Princess Diana's sins before she died. All they could do is talk about what what all she did that was wrong. And then the day she died, suddenly she was an angel. Interesting how we forget God doesn't. These next two verses, in verses 11 and 12, these are one of those underliner, highlighters, starers, asterisks, whatever you do in your Bible to call attention to something important, these are two of those verses you ought to mark. Don't be disheartened by delayed judgment. Look, verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given the Fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. This is one of the most insightful truths in the whole Bible to give us perspective. And you would never figure this out by intuition. Only God turning over that watch and showing you what's intricately going on inside there. Only God showing you the way He's really working in heaven. 
is the only way you would know this is happening. People don't get it right away, do they? They don't always get judged right away. Even though God's justice and judgment is gracious, they continue to presume upon it. You know what Solomon's saying? A person sins and God's gracious. He doesn't kill them. And so they sin they go, what? That worked. So they sin again and that worked. And they sin again and they sin again. And they begin this momentous pile of sinning and sinning in pursuit of sinful pleasure. And because they're not judged instantly for that, they think this is okay. I can keep doing this on and on and over and over over before we look into the judgment part notice students notice the grace of God his justice is so gracious justice and judgment are not always executed immediately instead of God responding in wrathful judgment every time and the first time we sin he waits Patiently. But instead of responding to God's grace and repentance, evil men think they can get away with their sin unchecked. I can't help but think of what kind of God we have. You know, it's, it's appropriate at a camp to stop and say, what kind of God do you have? Do you have the God of the Bible? Or do you have a God that you invented? Some of us think that God is this giant, 15-foot coiled cobra in a four by four room with no doors and no windows and we're sitting in there just waiting for him to strike remember what God told himself to be in Exodus 34 listen he told Moses I'm the Lord the Lord God listen to how he is compassionate gracious slow to anger I love that word slow to anger it's my favorite Hebrew word. It means long-nosed. God has a long nose. Say, really? Yeah, really. What does it mean that he has a long nose? It's the opposite of anger. Remember your dad? The anger he got, the shorter his nose got until it was curled right up into his eyes. Saying God has a long nose. He doesn't squint his nose. He's patient. He doesn't get upset abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet by no means will he leave the guilty unpunished. Eight times before it says that God doesn't leave the guilty unpunished, eight expressions of his graciousness. You know how you know you have a gracious God? Feel your pulse. You're still alive. He could have and should have taken us out of this world the first time we sin. And we're not sinners by choice. We're sinners by inheritance from our grandfather Adam. We, I have three boys, love to, love to teach them things. and A lot of parents in here love to teach their kids things. You know what you don't have to teach your kids? I never, there was never a day when I said, okay, Luke, John, Mark, come here. Okay, today... Today I'm going to teach you how to disobey. Okay, here we go. Ready? I'm going to tell you to do something, and then you say, no. Ready? You got it? Got it? Okay. 
pick up your spoon. No. Good. Got it. Okay, let's go. Got it. All right, now we're going to do the other. Okay, see these keys? Don't touch the keys. Don't touch, don't, don't touch the keys. Okay? But when I tell you don't touch the keys, I want you to touch the keys. Okay? Ready? Don't touch the keys. Good. You got it. Kids naturally, naturally disobey. And the curse works. You say, what curse? Your mom's? You know what she's saying to you? Someday, you're going to grow up. And you're going to have a kid just like you. (laughs) That curse works. I hear myself saying things to my boys. And I'm going, da-da-da-da. And I hear this little head going there. You sound like your dad right now. You're looking like your dad. You're making the same face as your dad. It's because my boys are doing the same thing I did. That's why. God didn't judge us the first time. We would all be dead at two years old. Or if you're Eric, six months old. I'm sorry I exaggerated. Four months old. Uh, Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. But people don't understand that. And because they get away with their sin, they think they can get away with it and get away with it and get away with it. And then people, even Christians, begin to think, hey, hang on. They're getting away with sin and enjoying at the same time. I'm fighting my sin and it's killing me. Shouldn't I just go enjoy life with them? Solomon's saying no. Even though the sentence isn't executed quickly, it is on its way. Romans 2.16 There's a day, according to my gospel, Paul said, that God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. In Luke 12, there will be a day when the secrets of men are shouted from the mountaintops, from the rooftops. Genesis 18.25 Far be it from, from you to do such a thing, O Lord, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, listen, shall not the judge of all the earth deal with humanity justly. Genesis 18.25 You know what the point is? You never get away with it. We opened our, our time looking at King David. You know what King David thought? Got away with it. I covered my sin. I took out Uriah. Bathsheba's my wife. Everyone will think this child is mine. Everything is covered. It's okay. But God sent Nathan. You can never, ever, ever hide sin from God. He even reads your mind. He knows what's on your heart. Read Psalm 139 maybe for your devotions tomorrow and see what kind of God you have, what kind of penetrating gaze your God has into your soul. Look at the progressive nature of sin though here. Look what happens. Because the sentence of even against an evil deed is not executed quickly, God doesn't judge them instantly. Therefore, guess what? The hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. 
Although a sinner does evil a hundred times, even lengthens his life. There's a progressive nature because you think you can get away with it once you get away with it over and over. This even works in a Christian's life. We begin to think like this. I was just talking to a student last week, college student. Who said, I'm really worried, Rick. I said, why? Because I read Hebrews. Okay, what does that say? Hebrews chapter 12. Get this. Those whom the Father loves, He disciplines. Wow. So why does that make you afraid? He said, because I have been looking at pornography for two years without any repentance. And God has never disciplined me. You know what his conclusion was? And I think he was right. I'm not a child of God. If God doesn't let believers go on and sin without checking them, and you can go on fully to do evil, just like the people in this verse, could it be that God is not disciplining you because you're not, because you're not his child? You know one of the evidences of my salvation? I can't get away with anything. Not only do I have the Holy Spirit dealing with me, I got Kim, Luke, John, and Mark dealing with me. On our way over here. I shouldn't have said it, but I said it. Flying over here. And I don't even say this word. I said, gosh. Now, that's not initially a bad word. It's just a bad word in the Holland House, okay? We just don't say that word. Gosh. Johnny says, Dad, we don't say that word. Okay. You're right. I repent. I love the fact that God has put checks in my life. What was the first point we said in the week? You are your brother's keeper. You could be the hand of God disciplining someone. Students, beloved students. If you can go on and sin unchecked, that's evidence that you don't know the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12 says, those he loves, he disciplines. You compare verse 12a and verse 13. It will not be well for the evil man. He will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. That's talking about the days of eternity. He can lengthen his days on this world, but not in eternity. You never, ever outrun God's justice. Let me say it again. Good guys don't always win, but bad guys go to hell. We're all bad guys, and we're all doomed to that unless we receive the Savior. Number two. Dealing with injustice in heaven's court. Don't be duped to doubt God. Don't be duped, persuaded, tricked. Don't be duped to doubt God. Now, we find this at the end of verse 12. Although sinner does evil a hundred times, may lengthen his life, still I know it will be well for those who fear God, yes, who fear Him openly. That fear Him openly literally means who fear Him to His face. It's not really talking about fearing him in front of people. It's who fear him right to his face. Who, who let God know that we are in awesome, reverent fear of you, the great threat of our soul, and the great Savior of our soul. 
There's a temptation to doubt God because the wicked seem to be getting away with their evil. So Solomon reminds us to continue to trust God by fearing Him, by remembering that He is the threat and that He will judge eventually. If we remember that He has the threat of hell, then we will grow in our trust of Him because we've been saved from that threat. Uh, my wife has a little, little saying that she helps me with sometimes. I, I, I love preaching the sovereignty of God, believing the sovereignty of God, talking about the greatness of God, and then sometimes I live like that's not even true. Like in L.A. traffic. Got to be somewhere sometimes. There's cars, every car in the world is on the freeway there, and I'm just like, oh man, I wonder. And she says, hey, at least you're not going to hell. I had a great pout and an excellent complaint going here, honey. And you just, you bring the whole God and hell thing in. And now I got nowhere to go but up and praise God. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's usually followed by, hey, aren't you the guy who likes to preach on sovereignty? Woman! Submit! She says, I am. So anyway. Don't doubt God. Now, can I take a little footnote here? You know how you doubt God's justice most? When you hold a grudge against somebody. Because when you hold a grudge against someone, you're saying, God's not capable of taking care of this injustice. Therefore, my emotions will keep it in check. John Piper says this, if you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. It's a good little phrase. If you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. Further, he says, when God's patience has run its long-suffering course, when this age is over and the judgment comes on the enemies of God's people, the saints will not disapprove of God's justice then. So why should we doubt it now? Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. You know why he says that? Because we're not leaving room for God's wrath because we're trying to enact it in our own emotional state. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God will settle all of your accounts. How do you deal with that with with unbelievers and with believers? You know how you deal with, with unbelievers? You don't care about anything they do to you. You should only care that they will be judged in hell forever if they don't repent. Do you have a compassion? Or do you doubt God's justice and try to take it into your own account? How about Christians? Have any grudges against believers? You know what you're doing when you have a grudge against a believer? You're you're smearing mud on the cross of Jesus Christ. And you're saying, the cross was not powerful enough to take care of their sin. Therefore, my emotions will take care of their sin in my own vengeance. Don't take vengeance in your own hands. Trust God. You know what, Christian? <laughs> There's no way to beat a spirit-filled, godly believer. You know why? You can't, can't beat them. Can't do enough to them. 
because it only helps them to, to grow. The worst thing you can do is kill them. They go to be with Jesus. Number three. Don't be deceived by unfair consequences. Don't be deceived by unfair consequences. Look at verse 14. There is uselessness, transitoriness. There is futility which is done on the earth. That there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this too is futility. What is this? Some Christians who love God lose their lives early. Some people who hate God extend their life for long days. Solomon's saying, don't lose heart if the wicked seem to live long, prosperous lives and the righteous don't. The porno industry is making billions of dollars and some precious believing families will go hungry today. How about this? Let's bring it into your world. A righteous Christian may study for a test for hours and days and hours and days and only make a B. And an unbeliever doesn't study at all, cheats and makes an A. Solomon tells us the answer. This is all vanity. It's temporal and it won't last. Don't be discouraged. Don't be deceived by such apparent injustices and inequities. But remember that God knows, God sees, and God will do what is right but remember that he'll do it in his time. Instead of looking at the wicked and saying, why are they getting away with it? Look at the wicked and be, be like God. And say, God, thank you that you haven't judged them right now, but have given them an opportunity to repent and hear the gospel. Pretty heavy stuff, but I love verse 15. Number four, don't be deprived of enjoying life. In the middle of looking at this unjust world, don't be deprived of enjoying life. Verse 15. So I commend pleasure. Time out. Didn't he just destroy pleasure back in chapter 2? No, no, no. He destroyed trying to find satisfaction forever in pleasure in chapter 2. He didn't say don't enjoy life. Here's a command. I commend pleasure. For there's nothing good for a man under the sun this, in this world except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him and his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. It would be very easy to become bitter and sour in such a world where evil and unrighteousness seem to go unchecked. But Solomon comes back to the theme in his whole book that even though we live in a broken world, we can still find pleasure and enjoyment but only from the hand of God. How do, you, how do you enjoy life in a broken world? You deal with what God gives you. I, I grew up without a lot of money. I didn't, I didn't actually know that we didn't have a lot of money until I was in high school. And I mean, my parents were really, really kind to kind of hide that from me. And um, I just thought beans and cornbread was really yummy. We had it three times a week. And uh, we didn't have a lot of money, a lot of stuff. And I wanted a bicycle so bad. That when I was in third grade, my dad, we couldn't afford one. So we went down to the bicycle repair shop and we got a bunch of parts. One of my greatest memories was my dad and me coming back 
putting all these parts together and making this body. Rusty, tattery, nasty, squeaky. There's a problem, though, with that bike. We got it all together, and, and when, when you rode it, it was all, the frame was bent. We didn't know that until we got it all together. And you kind of rode it like this. And in fact, it, it would only turn left. If you wanted to go over there, you had to come all the way <laughs> around. It was, I, I'm, actually, I'm not kidding. This was a nasty put-together bike. Uh, I had to pump the tires up about twice a day. But I remember the first time I got on that bike and rode down the street. Man, one of the happiest memories I've ever had. You know why? It was broken, but I still had a bike. And it was better to have that broken bike than to not have one at all. God is saying, this world is broken. But enjoy what God has given you. Now, this is not Epicureism. You know what that is? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. In other words, get all you can out of life right now. Beer commercial says, go for the gusto today. It's not what he's saying. He's saying if there are joys to be had in life, enjoy them. Where are you today in this passage? We're going to come back to that joy theme tomorrow, by the way. Are you a Christian struggling with bitterness? Is there someone that you need to talk to at this camp today or make a phone call to this afternoon, even your parents, who you've got bitterness in your heart about and what you're doing when you have that bitterness is you're assuming God's judgment seat. If you love the Lord, make it right. Don't don't be God on the throne. Be the one sitting waiting to have your court case tried. Because you know what? If you're a Christian, you're not on this side. You've already been over here. You've seen the judge and he crucified his son in your place. Met out that punishment for you and you're safe. Why would you then turn back and be bitter on anyone else? If God is convicting you of someone you need to make something right with, do it today. Call them collect. If it's your parents. Are you a Christian who's causing another believer unnecessary grief as their eternal sibling? Are you an unbeliever who sees no need to change or repent because life is letting you get away with whatever you desire and maybe, maybe you'll get right with God someday? You know what you're doing when you say that? You're saying exactly what these guys said in verse 11. You know what? God's not going to get me until later. I'm going to have all the fun I want, and then later I'll get right with God. You're not promised another day. Where are you with the great judge? I had a Sunday school teacher who uh, was my favorite in church growing up. I was in the, probably the sixth grade, and he told me a little story. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe it's cheesy. It doesn't matter. It ministers to me. I still remember it to this day. He was trying to explain to that little sixth grade Sunday school class the gospel and the fact that the judge had taken out his judgment on his son. 
He told us a story about a little boy who was allergic to bees. This boy uh, was in his father's car and the window's down and a bee came in and was about to sting him. Well, this boy was so uh, allergic, they were away, they didn't have a shot that had he been stung, he would have gone into anaphylactic shock and could have died. The father, seeing what happened, that the bee came in, calmly pulled the car over and saw the bee and grabbed it. No sooner had he grabbed it than he let it go again. And the boy became panicked and frantic. I don't want to die, Daddy. I don't want to die. And the dad said, you know what? You don't have to. That bee can't hurt you now. And he opened up his hand, and the stinger was around a round, was, was, was stuck in a giant, puffy, round, swollen mass in the father's finger. He said, I've already taken it away for you. A minister to me as a sixth grader still ministers to me today. On the cross, God took his own stinger in his son. Don't put it off. Don't put it off. Father, we live in a world where the wicked get away with injustice where the world seems to honor those who pursue sin. And we confess that sometimes we don't think it's fair, and sometimes we wonder about your judgment, but we need only to look at our own heart and see how judgmental we can be. So, Father, I pray for the believers in this room who may be holding a grudge and in doing that, they're doubting you as the judge to take care of that sin on the cross or in hell. Help us not to have bitterness against anyone. And oh God, please open the eyes of those students who've been postponing, pushing off, dealing with you as Lord and judge and become their savior. Make this a day where decisions are made, not in the heat of an emotional response, but out of a clear choice to submit to your sovereign lordship. In Jesus' name, amen.